the more signal you give to the algorithm, uh, the better the algorithm performs, right? Uh, you know, in the pre-ATT world, if you give more purchases, the better the algorithm performs. Obviously, the algorithm would take purchases from you and everybody else in the world, and it would just do better. Now, obviously, it's just taking your trials and doing much, much better. Hey, you're listening to the Subclub Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing subscription app businesses. We'll share insider secrets from the top subscription apps on the app stores. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Sub Club Podcast. I'm your host, David Bernard, and with me as always, Jacob Biding. Hello, Jacob. Hi, David. Here with you, as always. <laughs> Our guest today is Shamanth Rao, founder and CEO at Rocketship HQ, host of the podcast Mobile User Acquisition Show, and lead instructor at the workshop series Mobile Growth Lab. Shamanth's company, Rocketship HQ, is a boutique growth marketing agency with eight figures in managed spend. Prior to founding Rocketship HQ, Shamanth led growth marketing, leading to three exits. Hey, Shamanth, welcome to the podcast. Honored to be here. Thank you for having me, David and Jacob. Yeah, so um, I wanted to start with a, a little bit of, of, a, of a history lesson. You've been in, in mobile advertising and, and working on mobile apps for uh, since very early. And so could you take just a couple of minutes and step us through the history of kind of what led us to today with app tracking transparency uh, and all the different ups and downs and, and changes that have happened over the past uh, decade? Yeah, there's been a lot of ups and downs, as you said, but I think that I see two overarching trends. But for folks who want to go into the weeds, I would actually recommend two podcast episodes. One was mine with you, David. Uh, it was called A Brief History of App Store Monetization. You provide a very great perspective into how the App Store itself has changed over the years. Uh, the other one was uh, an interview I did with David Philipson. Uh, it was titled A Brief History of Device Identifiers. As you know, we're all about brief histories over here. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I think pertinent to what we're talking about, ATT and how that essentially disrupted growth marketing today, there have been two forces that have led up to this point, uh, which uh, over the last decade or so, right? And I think it's important to know and understand both of these just to know how we got here and why it's important. Right, because this ATT just did not happen overnight. ATT, there was science for a decade. And, uh, you know, I think obviously a lot of this is evident in retrospect, uh, but I think it's helpful <laughs> to know and understand what those breadcrumbs were. Trend number one was that there has been increasing accumulation of purchaser data by platforms over the last decade. You know, I remember. The, uh, you know, David, as you pointed out, I am a really old person who was around when mobile advertising just took off uh, with all this gray hair. Uh, but, you know, when I started out, we were doing CPC buys, CPM buys. I started doing mobile advertising before Facebook even had mobile ads, mobile app ads, right? And there was no conversion tracking. Uh, you know, uh, uh, in fact, I... Yeah, there was like no conversion tracking. If you you would 
buy installs and you're like, oh, we bought so many installs, we got so many purchases and we, we are profitable. And we spent like millions on games at the time and some of the roles added. Right? So uh, it, certainly the level of sophistication that emerged in mobile advertising, I don't think we could have foreseen 2012, 2013, 2014. But one of, like I said, from the CPC buys, gradually there were CPI buys as ad networks that now are billion dollar companies, IronSource and AppLavin, they were tiny ad networks at the time. A lot of others basically fell by the wayside. Uh, you know, they, they were like, we have enough confidence to be able to build per install rather than just uh, per click or per impression, just because we have that kind of data, that kind of confidence. The next step really was Facebook's AEO or purchase optimization. This is 2016, right? Which is, which seems so recent, and it's just staggering to think that we could not optimize for purchases like actually today six six years ago. Uh, crazy. And that was just the biggest game changer. And I still remember having a lot of skepticism that this would even work. And I'm like, how, how are they going to find out who's going to purchase? We've never done it. Nobody's done it. But clearly, if somebody could do it, it was Facebook. Right? So they had the purchasing data. And I think only subsequent to that point of time, I think it became evident to me myself that as to why Facebook was so successful, because they because basically of the IDFA, right? IDFA and Google ID, uh, they had that IDFA footprint uh, from their family of assets, certainly on Facebook audience network. So they were able to predict with easy accuracy who the purchasers were. Obviously, they took it a step further with ROAS optimization, right? So, and obviously, the more data Facebook's uh, uh, SDK got, the better it got uh, at predicting who the purchases were. Obviously, the uh, the more data the pixels on the web got, the bet the better the accuracy of the SDK became, and the other way around, right? Because they had, you know, if you made a purchase on a beauty website, you would make a purchase on a on an e-commerce app. So they put all of that data together. Right? So obviously Google had a very, very similar trajectory. I don't want to go too much into the weeds, but over the last decade, increasing amount of data got accumulated by Facebook, by Google, folks like AppLavin and IronSource, all the ad networks, everybody got increasing amount of data about users purchasing habits. Obviously they just weren't doing this in isolation. Apple widened up to this. Uh, uh, Google, <laughs> you know, Google well, Google had a bit of a conflict because they were also making money off of this. They are also making money off of this just now, so they have been less active in pushing back. But you know, Apple said, "Aha, uh -huh, these you know, you know, Apple's again not to go too much into the weeds, but it's part corporate strategy to for for Apple to say, "Aha, uh -huh, we are privacy minded," but it's also very very much about profits for them. Uh, they are promoting their own ad network now. I'll be I don't know. I don't have a lot of confidence as to how they will do. Anyway, right? So Apple said, you know, look, we had this UDID, which is non-resettable. Let's phase it out. Let's have an IDFA, which is resettable, which turned out wasn't too much of an improvement. Then they said, oh, <laughs> let's make this uh, uh, IDFA zero, but uh, IDFA zero, which means if a user goes on and turns off the lat, the IDFA becomes zero. And advertisers could not cannot target people. Shockingly enough, prior to IDFA zero, which was I think 2016, they still had LAT, 
But if a user turned off lad, it just meant advertisers, please don't crack this user. It was almost like a request. <laughs> it was a non-enforceable request. Basically, that please don't track me. But obviously, nobody cares. Right? Uh, anyway, so even lab zero was a very, very telltale sign that this is where the ATT is where Apple is headed. And if you had to look on the web, uh, Safari had intelligent tracking prevention. They have obviously been much more active on the web in terms of privacy crackdowns. Uh, Mozilla had what what's called ETP. I think it's called efficient tracking prevention. I forget what it's called. But then Chrome, of course, said, hey, we're going to deprecate third-party cookies. They've extended the deadline. But there's been a lot going on in the direction of privacy, right? Uh, and there's that has happened very, very much in parallel with increasing accumulation of data by platforms. And to some extent, you know, it hasn't been surprising for anyone who's followed the breadcrumbs. Last gone to zero, and 2018, Apple said, kids apps will not allow tracking. That was almost like a trial balloon for ATG. And mm -hmm. of course, 2020, ATG hit. It was not unsurprising, I would say, <laughs> right, that uh, it came to be just because of everything over the last decade that I just described. Yeah, that's a that's a really great way to summarize it is those two parallel courses with it's like in, in the shadows, there was like more and more and more and more and more data accumulation feeding all of this. But simultaneously, there was more and more and more awareness of privacy yeah. concerns and what that data was being used for. And that, you know, it does seem like the press, you know, had a, had a big influence in this. I mean, when it was the New York Times and Wall Street Journal both had big posts in like 2017, 2018, um, where they showed, you know, how you yeah. could track individual users and when they're going to, uh, um, you know, a certain medical clinic or yeah. uh, there was another set of stories around US service members who were yeah. being tracked by fitness apps and revealing uh, basic, uh, um, what we call unknown, previously unknown uh, military installations and things like yeah. that. So, yeah, it, it, yeah, there was a lot going on that has led us to this point. So, so now Apple has has dropped the bomb <laughs> after tracking transparency. You know, you you're 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 not allowed to track unless you first prompt. And you know we could we could talk an hour on all the different motivations and the um, and even the way they deliver it. You know the the way they request the prompt is is and the wording of the prompt has has even drawn controversy. But let's not get into it. that. <laughs> <laughs> I still every time it comes up, I still don't know what to click. Right. <laughs> yeah. But let's talk about the real world impacts, because I think there's been a lot of ink spilled and a lot of discussions around um, around those other things. But but what I want to hear from you as someone who manages a ton of spend and, and works in the industry and and, uh, and has to deal with this day in, day out. Um, let's talk through the real, real world impacts of, of, of how this is impacting the apps that you work with and what you've seen kind of in the broader industry. I thought it was interesting before we jumped on the, on the, uh, and started recording, you actually said, uh, you were expecting a crazier summer. So let's just start with that. So you're not quite seeing the disruption you initially expected. Is that, oh, am I overreading that? I, I don't want to be grandstanding here, but. I certainly was prepared for far, far worse. Uh, right. And I don't want to jinx this, but certainly there are a couple of advertisers we're working with that are doing all right. 
that are actually growing, but I'll talk about the mechanics that may have contributed to that further on. Right? Uh, but I, I certainly was prepared for far, far, far worse, I would say. Yeah, so so what are you seeing? I mean, um, yeah. and, and one of the things you, you've mentioned before is that you are seeing some shift to Android. Tell me about that uh, shift to Android spend. And is yeah. that in certain categories or is that across the board? I, I think it's across the board. I think it's much more so in gaming. Uh, and if you look at a bunch of MMP reports and estimates, they peg the dr shift to about, uh, iOS spend dropped about 30 to 40 percent. Uh, I think that sounds like the, a realistic range. Obviously, there's some verticals that are hit much, much harder, uh, right? Uh, yeah, um, but definitely, I think there's a lot of spend shifting to Android. I would attribute some of that to the fact that tracking is broken, but performance isn't, you know, or oh, uh, right. to say this, uh, right? And, like a number of folks we work with and we also advise and I've just talked to you, they're like, oh my God, my CPA reported by Facebook is terrible because Facebook's not tracking anything. And then when we look at their blended numbers, which is basically the money they make and the trials they get and the subscriptions they get or the purchases they get, it's all right. You know, oh, it's, uh, which is exactly what I mean by not being as bad as I expected. You know, oh, right. if you look at the iTunes dashboards, like you're doing all right you, you you know you didn't just go crashing down which is what i was afraid would happen right, right. Uh, and that, that, that has not happened so uh, but what is real and true is like i said tracking is broken even if performance is not right and tracking is just broken just because apple has a concept of privacy threshold uh which basically means uh if a campaign does not have a minimum number of installs or purchases. Apple is going to show zero install, zero purchases. They report all installs, hmm. but, uh, but they report very few purchases. What that means is if you are, let's just say, a casual game or a social casino app that has a cost per purchaser of 150 to $200, which is not uncommon for these apps, then each campaign, if you're running $500 a day per campaign, you get two purchases, so three purchases per campaign, which just gets obfuscated by the privacy threshold, which means if you run a $500 a day campaign, you're probably getting purchases, you're just not seeing them, uh, which is mm -hmm. better than a world where I'm not getting purchases. Right, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah we're, we're, are we are we back to the old days of um, of half your advertising budget is working? Yeah. You just don't know which half. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Very much true. Yeah, I was gonna ask. So the pullback on the spend, like, is that? Do you know where that's coming from along the chain? Is that is that companies not being sure anymore and pulling back? Is it is it agencies? Is it all along? Because at some point somebody has to. Because I, I, it makes sense that like. Well, one, we don't know how effective all this stuff was to begin with, right? Yeah, and so yeah, just yeah, losing yeah. the tracking doesn't necessarily mean it's less effective. It just means we don't know. Yeah. Um, and so it seems a little foolhardy to just dial back, right? Um, yeah. You know, especially if your business relies on it. But it seems like that's what most, or at least some percentage of companies have done. They've, they've pulled back just because they're not sure. Yeah, I think I will also say a lot of companies that have pulled back have had relatively strong Android products. Uh, the couple of companies that I know that are doing very well on iOS now 
actually don't have very strong Android products. And they were like, we don't have a choice, right? We don't have a choice. We'll do what it takes. Uh, I, I, I obviously, yeah, I don't necessarily mean to imply that strong Android products will result in strong performance, but having a fallback means, okay, we're going to take iOS a little bit easy, both transparent to Android, while we figure out what is going on. And you can see your question. I think a lot of that's coming from companies. Uh, especially larger established companies that have had BI teams and reporting systems and dashboards that report on D7 ROAS at the creative level are like, Mm -hmm. we just don't have that in our report anymore. And they're spending too much to be confident in just YOLO spending, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Are you seeing any specific trends on on CPMs and cross per trial or anything like that as far as with the drop in spend on iOS and the increase on Android, has some of the performance on iOS not degrading been more to do with market dynamics changing versus it actually just working as efficiently? Yeah, uh, you know, I I try not to look at CPMs just because CPMs are very contingent on the kind of optimization you have. Like, you know, in April and May, if you had value optimization, you'll be paying CPMs that went through the roof, and your CPMs on audience network would be higher than Instagram and Facebook. And the CPMs are a little bit of a fuzzy metric. What I like to look at is really the CPA, which is a cost per trial, which also has become fuzzy because of the privacy thresholds. So now it's right. blended cost per trial, which right. is being steady now. Like to your question, uh, to your underlying question about do I attribute that to the underlying market dynamics? Definitely, I think that the fact that there's lesser competition, I do think has contributed to uh, the C- blended CPA being steady for folks that have continued to do iOS. Definitely, I do think that it's, uh, the lesser competition has played into that. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's talk a little bit, because this is kind of our wheelhouse at, at Revenue Cat, obviously. Um, nice shirt, by the way, Jacob. <laughs> this, is the, this is the original first ever Revenue Cat t-shirt. Nice. How how are subscription apps being impacted in in what you've seen? And then how is that different from um, you know, games and other categories that you're working with? Yeah, uh, I would say subscription apps are hit much, much less hard than a lot of games. Again, uh, I'm qualified. I don't want to sound like I'm grandstanding because this is not like a party of Fiesta yet, but I think they're doing better than folks who are really clueless. I don't want to say clueless, but folks who just are struggling. You know, I talked about, you know, let's just say a hypothetical casual game or a social casino app that has a cost per paying user of 150 they get killed by the privacy threshold. A subscription app is less impacted by that uh, just because, uh, you know, again, your cost per trial, which is the primary metric nearly every subscription app optimizes for, is generally under $50, which means for the same $500 budget, you're getting, uh, you're getting, uh, you're getting 10 purchases, so you're less susceptible to that privacy threshold. Right, uh, and the other factor that makes the whole ATD thing a lot easier for subscription apps is that a, nearly every subscription app I know has 
90% plus of their pre-trials happen within the first 24 hours after install. What that means uh, in the ATT paradigm is a lot, lot, nearly all of that signal gets captured by the ATT algorithm, by, uh, by SCAD network algorithm, uh, pardon, uh, because SCAD network works off a system of timers, right? Uh, after, immediately after install, the, a timer starts, and after 24 hours, the timer resets. Uh, if your, and then another resettable timer starts, and uh, if no event has happened in the second timer, all of the events that have happened first get sent back to the uh, get sent back to Apple. No other events get sent further. And I'm probably definitely grossly simplifying some of this. Right. Uh, and uh, I have a YouTube video that goes into all of this into the weeds so people can check that out. But my point being the fact that all of the nearly all the trials happen within the first 24 hours make it relatively easier for subscription apps to have the signal be captured by SCAD network. That's another reason why subscription apps do quite well. Uh, and obviously, you know, the more signal you give to the algorithm, uh, the better the algorithm performs, right? Uh, you know, in the pre-ATT world, if you gave more purchases, the better the algorithm performs. Obviously, the algorithm would take purchases from you and everybody else in the world, and it would just do better. Now, obviously, it's just taking your trials and doing much, much better. And another trend we've seen is that web-based flows work a lot better for subscription apps than for games. Uh, again, there are challenges mm. in execution, but certainly one of the things they've seen that a lot of the relatively most successful apps are doing in the post ATT world is adopt web-based flows, uh, right? Uh, yeah, so I, I would say I, those are some of the factors that I think contribute to subscription apps being better off than games in the post-ATT world. Uh, again, not to grandstand, not to declare this a victory yet, but I think that they're much, much better off. Yeah, there's there's still also just the dynamic with consumable games. Like, I don't know what retention curves really look like and stuff like this, but with subscriptions, you know, your acquisitions you're making today only affect, you know, a chunk of your revenue in the very short term versus, and you have this like recurring user base versus consumables if your new users dry up really fast, like you're suddenly, you've suddenly lost a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of your business model doesn't work as well, right? So, yeah. Um, but wow, that's incredible that the, so on those CPIs uh, for like social casinos or whatever, which I imagine is just a high spend category, highly competitive space. So if they don't have like value attribution, what's actually driving the CPI so high? Like, how do they know like what users to spend that much money on? Is it just, is it just, I guess, click base? Like, they still like they can they can proxy and know like people yeah. that click on those are part of that high value group or or what 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 keeps the what keeps the targeting good enough so that you know because you can imagine if everything yeah. was perfectly anonymous, all CPIs would, clicks yeah. would be the same right across all apps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At this point, I don't. I would not say we have a perfect answer for apps with high CPA. Uh, I think the best we have right now is treat Facebook reported metrics, our platform reported metrics as directional, which means your CPA today would not be comparable to your pre-ATT CPA, but because it's going to be very, very high just because of the privacy threshold that, that I just described, 
that if you're getting maybe $500 CP on this and 700 on that, then you just infer campaign A is better than campaign B, but you're not inferring that your that is your actual cost of acquisition. So you're taking the CPA as a relative measure. And I think that's true for the casual game as it is for subscription apps. You're treating the CPA as a relative measure between campaign A and campaign B and not so much as an absolute measure of unit economics. I think that's a great point to transition into what's actually working right now. So we're talking about some of the impacts, but um, I mean, what you're kind of hinting at is something that, that you've mentioned before, is that the the best source of truth now is not these highly specific return on ad spend calculation, but actually using blended metrics. So tell me a little bit about how how you approach thinking about blended metrics as a source of truth versus, you know, the past, you know, five or six years where it's way more focused on um, very detailed return on ad spend. And again, to our earlier point, even if that return on ad spend calculation wasn't actually as accurate as it yeah. seemed, you know, you were at least able to calculate it more accurately. Now it's like kind of everything's out the window. So yeah. how are you approaching blended spend or blended metrics uh, to measure these things? Yeah, uh, I will add the caveat that the blended metrics isn't like modern or new, right? It's what old school offline advertising worked with, right? They were like, oh, this is how much I spent, <laughs> this is how much I made. That's how they measured everything before the internet. Right? And even with the internet, like a couple of companies we worked with, even pre-ATT worked with blended metrics because they're like, Look, we know that a portion of our paid installs drive organics. We have a very, very clear correlation between our paid and organic. So we'll be, we would be leaving money on the table if all we took into account were paid users and not organic. So, you know, people we work with have definitely done that. And there are companies that have done it just to pursue top line growth. Uh, they're like, look, we need to grow as aggressively as possible. And the way to do that is to take blended metrics to justify the growth rather than to shackle ourselves by taking uh, just paid ROAS. But that's it to your question. How, how uh, practically, how do we sort of look at this? It just basically means we'll, instead of saying uh, this campaign gave us uh, a D7 return on ad spend of 20% or D7 cost per trial of $30, you're basically saying your overall marketing spend gave you a $20 cost per trial across paid and organic and social and everything that you're spending on, right? Obviously, that means uh, a lot of people tend to be uncomfortable with that because they're like, oh, you know, if I hadn't <laughs> spent on marketing, I would have still gotten 200 trials a day uh, and I'm giving credit to marketing for that and, you know, I don't have a direct answer to that, but I think the answer really is, would you want to be, would you want a model that's helpful in helping you grow or would you want a model that's accurate but isn't helping you grow? Right? And I'm not going to claim I have an answer to that one. Right? But uh, yeah, so uh, you're basically looking at your total number of trials and your total spend. Uh, and obviously this calculation becomes heavier if you have multiple channels, if you're running Google, Facebook, Snap, uh, and multiple ad networks, 
then you're like, oh, you know, my one of the ad networks probably performed badly, but my total blend has not changed all that much because my other channel was like 10% of the end stuff. So you know, there are challenges, especially at large levels of spend, but it is a very solid source of truth, uh, especially for smaller advertisers who may be on a handful of channels because it comes out of your iTunes. It's what you see in the bank. And um, you also mentioned that um, sending people, you, you mentioned web flows are working really well. And I assume what you meant by that is sending people from an ad into onto the web instead of onto the app store, which is it's really fascinating to me uh, on multiple levels because, you know, the app stores have always been this black box where you you put a certain number of of clicks into it and then you know you see the end result but you don't see any of the steps in between. I mean, you have some basic metrics with app store um, analytics and stuff. Um, but with the web, I would imagine that that gives you a more direct, trackable um, link from somebody who um, sees an ad to then actually kind of what they're doing on your website. So, but then ultimately, I've talked to a lot of developers who talk about how on the web their conversions are actually quite a bit lower than in the app because Apple's made it so easy to use in app purchase. So, but it seems like maybe there is somewhat of a balance there is that maybe you lose fewer people from having to jump through those hoops of installing the app before they even get to the onboarding, before they can be shown, um, you know, the value proposition and then being, you know, shown a, a subscription uh, page or whatever it is. What have you seen working in regard to web flows and then, and specifically for, for subscription apps? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, uh, I've certainly seen a lot of success for subscription apps that have adopted web flows. Uh, and a couple of apps I've worked with, they've seen month-on-month growth through ATG. Again, nothing that uh, typical uh, result, but it definitely does happen. It's, I think a couple of elements, you know, uh, I think it's what's most important is to make sure the flow is right. And there's a couple of possible flows. Uh, uh, I think it's important to think through which one is right, really best to figure out what's right. But I think one flow could be show an ad, a user goes to a landing page, which is basically like a B2B or a B2C landing page on the web, uh, what you would get for a, a web product. And you have a link that, uh, the, except the call to, call to action on the landing page is go to the app store. Uh, so mm-hmm. a lot of the experience purchase and trial experience happens on the app store. The web page I actually does the job of selling the user on the product. And it's my hypothesis that this actually works well because the web page can do a much, much better job of selling than the app store can, uh, while still making it clear that this is an app. Uh, and while the actual conversion happens within the app itself. But uh, somewhat similar, uh, a different flow that's very comparable would be take, take a user to an ad, uh, take a user from an ad to a landing page where users have to input their phone number, which again gets a uh, user to makes it, makes it clear to the user that this is an app, this is a mobile experience. A user gets a text message and user signs up for it. Uh, uh, and, and when they click on the text message, they get to go to the app store and download the app. Right? Uh, 
Again, another model could be a user clicks on an ad, goes to an article or a content page, uh, which is more what you would see if you had a tabula or an brain ad. Again, the article or a content page leads to an app store. And I think the last and I think the, the more complex, uh, sorry, flow is just to have onboard them on the web. Uh, basically, take them to a web page and they onboard on the web and uh, to hopefully also actually make the purchase on the web, in which case you pay the 30%. Uh, this is, to be honest, the hardest and it's most resource intensive. And really it's my recommendation that you pursue that path after you have pursued one of the other paths that I recommended because you don't want to invest a ton of engineering and development time in building a web onboarding flow if you don't even know if that the web flow is going to work for you. Uh, so I would recommend just testing the web landing pages first and then doing the web onboarding. So, right. Uh, yeah, I, I think those are some of the m most important models that we see work. Something else I think that's also very, very critical is I think a lot of people when they look at a lot of advertisers I know that have that started on the web for the first time were like, oh, let's put together this nice landing page that looks like our homepage uh, on our website and just put it out there. That doesn't work very well unless you've been very intentional about what value propositions to touch on the actual layout of your landing page. And we have a structure that we use now, which is like look, uh, your most important uh, pain point and value proposition goes in the header, then there's social proof, then your most important emotional benefits, then the features. I think the most successful advertisers we work with are very, very intentional about what that web page is looking like, and they also test rigorously. Uh, I think all of those elements are very, very critical to making the web flow work. Yeah, that's really smart. And I hadn't thought of it quite that way about how, you know, now as I was talking with the app store being the black box, is you're, you're just sending somebody, hoping they look at the screenshots, hoping the icon resonates with them, hoping the title and subtitle are meaningful. But when you send them to the web, it's not just about yeah, pushing them right to subscribe on the web, but it's actually just having a better opportunity to communicate the value prop so that by the time they get to the app store, they are, they have a much higher uh, incentive. They have a higher, um, they're just more likely to actually take action by the time they do get to the app store. So that makes a lot of sense. Tells you a lot about the uh, quality of like the app store as a sales pitch, right? I mean, but yeah. I guess yeah. when you're like looking at a, you know, you're trying to differentiate, right? And and there's only so much you can communicate in a block of text and then a bunch of screenshots, right? Yeah. You've seen so much yeah. data shoved into the screenshots on apps, on apps, yeah. there, right? They're not screenshots, right? They're like a slide deck. Yeah. Little billboards. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I also think another reason why the app store works so worked so well pre-ATT was Facebook would just show ads to users who installed other subscription apps. So if you send them directly to the app store, they're almost pre-qualified, which is not right. anymore. Uh, so I think the web flows level the field uh, a lot. Yeah, it's 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 a tough um, skill set though for a lot of developers because like they don't often have web experience internally. And I think I think um, I hear so much like people get so obsessed about the 30%, 
um, and they want to jump straight to that last one you mentioned about yeah. building yeah. a whole online purchasing thing, which like, you know, Stripe's pretty easy to use. Like it's, it's, you know, it's yeah. not that much more work than building a landing page, but you have to remember, um, okay, management. So now you got to have a link where somebody can go and cancel that thing. Now you also have to worry about taxes. Stripe doesn't like collect yeah. uh, tax information for you already. You have to, you know, then synchronize that with your backend. And, you know, if you're using revenue, you synchronize with us or whatever, but you got to manage all that too. It adds a lot of complexity um, for 30%, right? And when you're just trying to, you know, all of these things can find incremental growth. Yeah. But like, as you're saying, it's important to put them in the right order or you can end up wasting a lot of, of energy and, and money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I did want to, to move on to the um, the future. So we, we've we kind of gotten through the first couple of months of these, uh, this rough patch and are into this um, new era of, of mobile advertising. Are there any things that you're seeing that are especially promising that you think are the future? Like, is the future everything we've been discussing so far of just 50% of your advertising works and 50% doesn't and you're never going to know which? Or, do you, or are there some technologies coming online or some approaches that, that are just going to take time to kind of work out? Yeah, I think there's going to be some changes. I don't know if these are going to be but shattering uh, in terms of changing what's the new normal with ATT. Uh, I think the most promising, though, I would say is uh, iOS 15 custom product pages. Uh, basically, you know, it solves the problem that Jacob, you were alluding to, which is you have one small slide deck and everybody sees the same thing and the app does a, te a terrible job of selling a user on what the product is. Basically, with uh, the custom product pages, you can have up to 35 versions of your app store, uh, which means you're like, if you're a you know, wellness app, uh, if let's just say you're like a meditation app that has uh, meditations for sleep or anxiety and how to meditate, you can have a separate landing page, so to speak, on the app store for sleep, anxiety, meditation, right? Uh, and you can send you get a unique URL for each of these. So presumably you can have an ad for sleep going to an app store for each sleep, ad for anxiety going to an app store for anxiety. I think that can help. I just don't think it's going to help too much on the measurement front. I, uh, obviously the actual execution is still unclear. The announcement's out. So I think definitely one of the bigger changes, I would say that's coming with iOS 15. The other uh, other one would just be that uh, advertisers are going to be receiving postbacks, which is huge, uh, at least in ensuring accuracy of the advertising data so far. What's completely bonkers right now is networks like Facebook, Snap, everybody gets your postback from SCAD networks, but you as an advertiser, you as an advertiser do not, which means you basically take the word for it. Uh, I do know for a fact that TikTok has actually changed values. I don't want to call it malicious because the conversion value was null and they changed it to zero. Uh, the problem is that null and zero have very, very different meanings. Zero means install, yeah. and null means an install happened and there's just no value. So I know that they did that change. I don't know if they're continuing to do it. So, uh, 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 But my point is, 
and Google explicitly says we are going to use modeled conversions, which basically means take our word for it. Facebook says campaign data is accurate, everything underneath is modeled, which means take our word for it. <laughs> with which all of this is because the postback goes to the networks, but not the advertiser. With iOS 15, if the postback goes to the advertiser, you can at the very least verify that they're doing the truth, which <laughs> bonkers considering, I think David, you were mentioning, uh, until all this time, uh, you, you just had to take the platform's word for it, even pre-ATT, uh, right? So uh, I think that's going to be, that's going to be a big, big change, even though a lot of that's going to happen under the hood. And I say advertisers, for the vast majority of advertisers, the MMP is going to do the receiving uh, of the uh, postback, but I think that's going to be a big deal. But uh, I think those are some of the big changes, the custom product pages and the postback to advertisers. But really, in terms of the future, in many ways, I do think it's going to be back to 2013 or 2014. Uh, I think I had talked about how we bought a number of installs, and we hope that a certain percentage, well, we knew that a certain percentage of them would convert to purchases as a before subscription, so there weren't really trials, but I think it's going to be a very similar world. We're going to be, we're going to have to be more comfortable making decisions based off of incomplete data. I, I do see that being the future. One of the things um, I've been hearing a lot about since since Apple announced ATT last year is incrementality testing. So systematically turning on and off, you know, so if you're advertising, I mean, obviously this would be a tool for, for larger apps, but if you're advertising across Facebook, Google, Snap, TikTok, and, you know, other mobile DSPs, um, you know, systematically moving spend around and then measuring the difference or even turning spend off in certain channels and increasing spend in other channels. Um, have you seen that work? Um, and are you um, excited about the potential uh, of having tools in this space? Or or do you think incrementality testing is a bit overhyped? So I think with any recommendation like incrementality, I think it's the one caveat that a lot of people miss is that it's useful for a very, very tiny fraction of advertisers. Uh, David, like you said, if you are on like all self-reporting networks, multiple DSPs, multiple ad networks, influencers, TV, yes, absolutely. You know, you should use incrementality because there's just no way you're going to find out if this is going to work. And incrementality and uh, media mix modeling, you want to use both of them hand in hand to make that work. But I would say the kinds of advertisers who need something like this are a very tiny fraction. So the vast majority of advertisers, even the advertisers who are on four to five channels, even advertisers who spend low six figures in uh, monthly spend, I don't think uh, incrementality uh, is, uh, testing is going to be very helpful or actionable just because it's hard. Uh, you know, it's, it just becomes imprecise at small volumes yeah. of data. You need a critical mass of data for your analysis to be useful, uh, right? Uh, and I think it's a very similar thing with MediaMix models, right? You need enormous, enormous budgets for those to be useful and helpful. So I, I do think they, these are great, but I think the fact that they're not an antidote to all of the havoc that ATT has uh, brought uh -huh. about, they're applicable to a tiny sliver of the advertisers out 
Yeah, that makes sense. And then if if you're only advertising on Google or only advertising on Facebook or only advertising on the two of them, I mean, they're they're essentially doing some level of incrementality testing for you, right? They're they're measuring the performance of this campaign against that campaign, and they're ramping up depending on the results they they seem to be seeing. So that some of that's kind of already covered if you're using those platforms uh, as your primary sources. Um, Another thing I, I wanted to get your thoughts on was experimentation with other forms of advertising. I, you're you're very focused, you know, currently on on um, you know paid user acquisition, and I don't think that's going away. And I think for you know for a lot of apps, that is going to be the 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 best, most reliable way to continue scaling, even without accurate measurement. But have you seen any other? Uh, pushes with any of your customers um, to work on on uh, on different styles of advertising, different uh, approaches to marketing that are being successful. And do you see there kind of more incentive to try more things these days? You know, I spoke about web, and I think there's definitely much much stronger interest in web campaigns than even six months ago. Uh, at larger budgets, there's definitely stronger interest in uh, influencers but i would again uh much like with the incrementality i would say if you're on smaller budgets i do not recommend experimenting i do not recommend diversifying certainly at larger budgets and i would also say folks that are that were spending in the tens of millions in budgets folks like that would have been or even like millions a month uh they're certainly some of the larger studios they have already been on influencers. They've already been advertising on TV. So none of this would be new to them. Yeah. So I, I don't know if there's anything radically new that we see. Yeah. And then that kind of gets back to the the good old tried and true. Just got to build a good product and work on your monetization and kind of get back to the basics of a product as well. I think sometimes these these overly complex, overly targeted systems, especially for people who make software, can tend to be busy boxes, right? They can tend to be, <laughs> they can tend to be things that like con attract our attention and, and because they, they seem very like, you know, oh, we can get it right and really make it scale. And it, some people have, right? It, it's possible, but 80, 20, I think for a lot of people out there, like just, just, just focus on the fundamentals and you can go pretty far. And then as time comes, you can layer in the more, you know, yeah, yeah. Complexity yeah. and precision. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, at a certain level of scale, TV influences, all of this becomes much, much more meaningful. Uh, and like I said, that's certainly more meaningful already. But yeah, you don't need too much expensive. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Uh, it was great chatting with you and, and uh, a lot of insight there on, on what's working and, and what how to think about things in this, this new world of mobile marketing. Um, you know, as we wrap up, is there any uh, last thoughts? Uh, we're going to include links to, uh, uh, to where people can find you on, on, on the web and to Rocketship HQ and whatnot. Uh, anything else you want to share? Uh, no. Uh, like I said, I think this, this was not as bad as, it, as we thought it would be. Uh, certainly, there's ways to mitigate the worst case scenarios. Uh, some of which hopefully I've been able to share. Uh, so uh, hopefully they'll come out of, on the other side of all of this without too much craziness. I think people are going to keep using apps. 
That's my yeah. that's my prediction. <laughs> and I think people are going to keep advertising apps. Yeah, 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 yeah. Certainly, it's the how that's going to have to change, and it has to change dramatically. And there's no uh, getting around that. Well, it was great chatting with you, and um, we'll uh, talk again soon. Absolutely, David. Well, thank you. Bye. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Thank you.